I'm Jim Wallace, and I'm here with Sojourners in Washington, D.C. Okay, so we are seeing this really interesting phenomenon at the moment in voting behaviour. Um, 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in the 2016 election. Many of them continue to support him. What's going on with evangelicals and the right? Well, uh, most white Christians voted for Donald Trump. 81% of white evangelicals, but uh, about 56 or some percent of white Catholics, white mainline Protestants. So a majority of white Christians voted for Donald Trump. And this isn't a Republican or Democrat issue. Donald Trump is a candidate who ran a campaign rooted deeply in racial bigotry from the beginning of his campaign and now his policies. Now, many white evangelicals are quick to say that they didn't vote for him because of his racial bigotry. But then black evangelicals say back to them, so I guess his racial bigotry wasn't a deal breaker for you. When the media says evangelicals, they really are talking about white evangelicals. Because if you count all the evangelicals who voted, uh, Hispanic evangelicals, black evangelicals, it was about split 50-50 between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and so, and to be honest, a lot of younger white evangelicals, because of how the word evangelical is perceived now, don't want to admit to being or call themselves evangelical. So if they're walking out of a polling place and some exit pollster says, are you an evangelical? They'll say no. So even though they're from that kind of background, they wouldn't want to identify. So evangelicals of color voted overwhelmingly against Donald Trump. Even those evangelicals of color who have conservative views on the issues that the people who voted for Donald Trump said they cared about the most. So most evangelicals of color and a lot of young white evangelicals voted against Donald Trump too. So if race wasn't a deal breaker for these white Christians that we're talking about, which were the deal breaker issues and why do you think they were considered to be more important than race? Well, that's a good question to ask them because black evangelicals haven't gotten an answer back yet about that. So it's caused this great racial divide that I haven't seen in any time since the civil rights movement. I mean, most of the evangelicals of color uh, that I know who were against Donald Trump are also pro-life. But they would have a more consistent view of life where the lives of poor children after they're born are important to them too. Um, other consistent ethic of life issues that the Catholics talk about would be important to them too. Issues of war and peace and capital punishment and all the rest. So, and indeed, um, when we support low-income women and uh, with health care and uh, nutrition, uh, it reduces the abortion rate. So if you're voting for someone who will support policies that really cut off support, which Donald Trump's policies do, they literally abandoned, abandoned poor families and children, the abortion rate is going to go up, not down. So even if you care about the abortion rate, which I do, if you want to reduce abortion, all the evidence shows supporting low-income women and their kids is the best way to reduce abortion. 
let's talk about abortion specifically for a minute because it feels look from the outside looking on as though this is such a big deal in America com- compared to other parts of the world. I'm interested in your perspective on why is it such a defining issue, particularly for many people of faith? Well, it's been politicized by by the political right. Uh, I think abortion is a moral issue. Let me make that clear. So when I say it's time to reduce abortion in America, uh, some people on the left say that implies a moral taint. And I say, yes, it does. <laughs> abortion is a moral issue. Uh, there are two lives at stake here. So how do we find some common ground in this country? Most Americans, I think, would favor a policy that really tries to prevent abortion, reduce abortion, support low-income women, really combat teenage pregnancy uh, in those kinds of ways more than criminalizing what is often a desperate and tragic choice for a woman who feels very alone. So how do we really have a consistent ethic of life and reduce abortion in this country? Most Americans would favor that, but the extremes on the right and the left are against that. They have their, 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 I I think the right is more pro-birth than pro-right. I think the right is more pro-birth than pro-life. And I think the left doesn't want to recognize that for many of us as Christians, this is a moral issue. How did we get here? Because 40, 50 years ago, many Christians, I'm thinking particularly of evangelicals, were lived fairly separatist lives. You know, they, they really interpreted the set-apart scripture in a specific way that you weren't particularly involved in public life that was tainted. Um, and we've seen a big journey over that time. How did we get to the point where the defining issue for many of those um, is so divisive in this way instead of unifying? Well, it didn't start that way. I was raised in an evangelical world uh, where faith was private. And I remember going into the city of Detroit as a teenage kid and discovering the black churches and coming home and saying to my church, uh, there's something big that's very wrong in the society in Detroit, in our churches. Um, and an elder said to me, he said, uh, you have to understand, son, that Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. Our faith is personal. And I left that night in my head and my heart. Because if this issue was ripping me up inside, overwhelming my head and my heart of what's going on in my city, had nothing to do with my faith, then I wanted nothing to do with the faith either. I came back to my faith uh, in, because of Matthew 25, after years of a student movement and organizing civil rights and anti-war movements, where Jesus says in that gospel text, it was me. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was a stranger, an immigrant. I was sick. I was in prison. And you didn't, you didn't come to me. You didn't do anything. And all the people who were listening thought they were his followers. And they were saying, when do we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and stranger, sick and in prison? If we'd known it was you, we would have at least formed a social action committee or something. But he says, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. It was me. That text brought me to Christ. And I'd never heard that text preached on in my home church ever before. So that brought me to Christ. And then a number of us as young evangelicals, in the early 70s, wanted to, to uh, 
I would say God is personal but never private. So we wanted to put together the personal and social gospel, and we did. And we did a declaration of young evangelicals, and it was a growing movement until the religious right showed up, but they didn't just show up. Uh, three political operatives <laughs> went to see uh, some fundamentalist preachers like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, and I made, they made a deal. I know this because I know those operatives, and they told me about the conversations. <laughs> they made a deal. We'll make you famous if you give us your lists, and we'll do, do direct mail to all your lists. So abortion became the issue, and later uh, same-sex marriage and pornography and so on. And so they went public, but only on those issues. There are 2,000 verses in the Bible about the poor, 2,000 verses. And they're very clear that our treatment of the poor, the oppressed, the stranger, the outsider, is a test of our relationship to God. That's utterly, biblically clear, more clear than all the issues that they prioritize them. They don't prioritize what the Bible says about going public because what the Bible says is how we treat the most vulnerable is the most important test of our righteousness as a society. The prophet said that. Jesus said that. During that time, that wasn't the only way, though, that the church was coming to terms with public life. So that was a very significant part of the moral majority movement but you yourself have played a part in, in another piece of the jigsaw really that you've been a big influence on millions of people in terms of mobilizing for social action and kind of faithful witness mission in all its forms did you expect expect that we would get to this point in this time well Remember, the black churches were at the core of the civil rights movement. Without the infrastructure of the black churches, there wouldn't have been a civil rights movement. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist preacher, not just a civil rights leader. So I was inspired by the black churches, uh, who had the most holistic gospel in America, the most holistic expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ in America, is always been from the black churches, always, not white evangelicals always black churches. So I'm going to say I'm inspired by them. That's, that's, what, that's what brought me back to faith. But yeah, there's a was a growing movement, still is, all over the country. Uh, Sojourner's uh, mission is to put faith into action for social justice. And it's uh, our movement's growing more than ever, uh, particularly since the last election. Uh, it's a huge movement all over the world and in this country. It's multiracial. Uh, multicultural, certainly intergenerational, a lot of young people uh, who, like me as a kid, if the, if the Christian message in the church isn't at all relevant to the issues that are shaping their lives, they're not in- interested. They, they're, they're leaving. And so we're finding a lot of young people who often identify you know, with their affiliation, none of the above. They're called the nuns. Uh, most believe in God. They just don't want to affiliate with religion because of what religion is doing and not doing. So I think there's tremendous opportunity. And in fact, in this new political situation, I think Donald Trump, I think the religious right will rise and fall with Donald Trump. When you identify yourself with a political candidate who is literally the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, And then, as they say, 
give him, they actually said this, Tony Perkins, give him a mulligan. Tell me what that means. You don't have that phrase. Well, mulligan is a second shot off the golf tee. You first hit your golf ball the wrong way, you get a second chance, a mulligan. So what would have happened, I don't know when this is going to air, but what, what would have happened if it was revealed that uh, President Barack Obama had an affair with a porn star while he was married, paid her off $130,000 uh, just before his election? Do you think the white evangelicals would have not cared or given him a, a mulligan? Barack Obama was and is a wonderful uh, father figure and husband, and whether you like all his policies or not, I wish they'd have at least given him credit for that. Donald Trump is, is uh, <laughs> you know, all of our traditions in our history, uh, every monastic movement, every revival, has tried to do an alternative to the worship of money, sex, and power. Poverty, chastity, obedience, or simplicity, covenantal relationships, uh, service instead of power. Donald Trump is the ultimate worshiper of money, sex, and power. Donald Trump isn't immoral. He's amoral. He has no personal or public moral compass whatsoever. His world, his campaign, his presidency is just really all about him. I've got close, good Republican friends who are distraught by what's happened to their party. And for those who maybe didn't think they were voting for racial bigotry by voting for Donald Trump, they cared about abortion or same-sex marriage, uh, it's clear now to vote for Donald Trump is to vote for the deliberate use of resentment, fear, uh, bigotry. And so it's very clear now. This isn't, uh, there are conservative and liberal political philosophies. Christians are on both sides of those questions. Uh, as I say, I've got good friends who are uh, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. But Donald Trump is, what, what we're facing right now, to put it most simply, what's at stake in this country is the soul of the nation and the integrity of faith. That's what's at stake. The soul of the nation and the integrity of faith. Who we're going to be as a country. Who is going to be an American? Who is going to shape our future? That's what's at stake right now. And Donald Trump is offering a clear vision forward where finally uh, the rightness of whiteness is at the core of his vision. The resurgence of racism and white nationalism is beyond dispute. And what was often overt is becoming covert on racism in America, or implicit is not very explicit. It's very clear what he stands for. And so it's become a test of faith for Christians, how we respond uh, to the future of this country. But a lot of Christians really do seem to have bought in to Trump's narrative. And since being here in D.C., I've heard at least one Trump supporter walk me through policies which he believes are compassionate, redemptive, transformative, words used about some of Trump's policies. Like what? Well, the, the examples specifically given were about dreamers and about criminal justice. So clearly there are parallel narratives 
that appeal to different no, parts aren't. of the church. There, 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 there aren't. I mean, uh, ger, G-E-R in the Bible, uh, the word for stranger, it's 92 times in the Old Testament. How we treat the stranger, the Bible says, is a test of our relationship to God. The hate, how we treat the stranger, is a test of our relationship to God. So we've got these young dreamers who were brought when they were kids. Uh, I want to tell you, they've worked in this building. I've hired them. I'll hire them them again. Uh, The immigration system is broken. It's been broken for a long time. Both parties are at stake to blame. But how we treat the stranger among us is, is a matter of faith, not politics. And so how we treat the stranger, Jesus says, is how you treat him, right? So uh, deporting young people every day, uh, a, a whole part of the body of Christ wakes up and they're immigrants and they don't know if they'll be in the country or their father will or mother will by the end of the day. Now, Corinthians says, if one part of the body suffers, we all should suffer. So when you've got people waking up in the morning not knowing if they'll be here by the end of the day, or black parents wake up every morning in this country afraid for their children walking out the door. That's a fact. And if you don't even know that, you don't have any relationship with black and brown brothers of Christ. So if white Christians, members of the body, are feeling no pain when another part of the body is suffering, we're violating 1 Corinthians. These are theological issues for us, not just political. But some people do believe, I mean, you're, you're clearly disagreeing with them, but those people believe that there is virtue to some of these policies. And those people are Christians. So what is going on in terms of the messages that people are hearing about the ways that that politics and faith are combining? Well, let's have some Bible study. When you've got, when you've got policies in North Carolina, uh, 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 voting ID policies, that a North Carolina court, court, not Jim, a court says, are surgically targeted to prevent blacks from voting, that's not a policy Christians can support. Can't do that. So let's have some Bible study here. You know, uh, look, big megachurch pastors tell me, white evangelicals, I have these people for two hours a week. Fox News has them all week. Fox News agenda is is what's motivating. Not, there are there are there deeply are some white evangelicals who feel so strongly on abortion, for example, that that becomes their single issue. I understand that. Uh, and the Democrats are so extreme, in my view, on abortion. They won't even commit to reducing abortion. Uh, I disagreed strongly with how Hillary was so far left on that question, which left Christians often with nowhere to go. But, you know, the polls show that most white evangelicals are supporting Donald Trump because they don't like immigrants either. They want more guns, too. They want to make more money themselves and don't want immigrants to get their jobs. It's, it's those, that's Fox News. That's not the Bible. So let's have a biblical. We, we just released a statement called, uh, and you, you should cover this in your thing, a unity declaration on racism and poverty delivered to every member of Congress, every senator, 
And it's a theological, biblical statement about racism and poverty. It's saying these issues should bring us together across political boundaries. Because Genesis 1 says God created us in God's image after God's likeness. No exceptions. Racism is a sin against God. And when political leaders uh, use racial resentment and fear as a political strategy for their own gain, that's anti-Christian. The body of Christ is the most diverse human community in the world. And to have white nationalism and white racism and white supremacy at the core of one's political movement is an offense against God. So I've got lots of Republican friends who believe in fiscal responsibility, who believe in, uh, in, in the dignity of life, uh, uh, who, but who, who, who just can't, as Christians, tolerate Donald Trump. And they don't. So let's talk about what the Bible says. So uh, if we're going if, 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 if to talk about issues, let's talk about what the Bible says about those issues. So if people, if, if you can see that people were kind of between a rock and a hard place, so Trump, in your view, was claiming, was, was appropriating racism to further his ends, um, you're saying that Hillary was too far left for most Christians. What, what's going well, on? On the issue of abortion. Okay. Look, Hillary was also, people felt like, tied into Wall Street as well, okay. uh, that she was uh, not somebody. The Democrats haven't talked about poverty seriously in a long time, that they talk about the middle class. Uh, so the, the Democrats, I feel politically homeless most of the time, and many of us do in this country, uh, taking racism seriously as a theological issue, taking uh, poverty as an issue that strikes to the biblical core of what it means to be a righteous society, how we treat the vulnerable, uh, taking the dignity of all life, all lives seriously, a consistent ethic of life, um, uh, that kind of makes you politically homeless in America. And I've said that to Democrats too. Let's talk about some of the language that really stood out um, both in the election campaign and since then in this presidency. So um, if we believe that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, then there, is, there are some questions to ask about Trump's use of language I'm talking about the things he's publicly said on the record, let alone the things that he's reported to have said behind the scenes. Uh, disparaging about women, um, uh, rude to other heads of state. You know, really, um, uh, what comes across to us outside of the US has been quite brutal, harsh words. And yet what we're hearing from some people here is that, well, at least he stands out. And there was such a disappointment with the status quo that somebody who was speaking differently was likely to be noticed and to attract people who felt as though politicians are all the same. What do you think is going on in, with that disillusionment in general with politics? There's a lot in your question there. Donald Trump is a sexual predator. That's how he's lived his life. Uh, you can't take that away and, as they say, give him a mulligan. The way Donald Trump talks about women, the way he's treated women, uh, you know, I have two teenage boys. 
And we have to keep talking about how Donald Trump is not a role model for my boys or for our children. How Christian parents can support him, I don't know. His treatment of women is despicable. So there is no Christian defense of how Donald Trump speaks of, talks about, and has acted toward women. Now, I was one of those who was very critical of Bill Clinton's behavior toward women, too, and Democrats didn't speak out much against that. Is there hypocrisy? Of course there is. But where is the consistent Christian ethic? There's a poll, there's a poll that was taken um, uh, about during the Clinton years that said 70% of white evangelicals believe that a politician's personal behavior affects their governance. Only 30% said it didn't matter. Now that poll has been reversed. 70% of evangelicals, white evangelicals, say it doesn't matter. And only 30%. It does matter. It mattered with Bill Clinton. It matters with Donald Trump. It does matter. Um, uh, to say America is first for Christians, that's a theological heresy. We're an international community. We all love our countries. That's fine. But the body of Christ is a global community. And so to not care about the rest of the world is not to care about the rest of the body of Christ. The body of Christ globally doesn't know what in the world's happening in America. Because these, the word white Christian is a problem. Because the operative word in white Christian now in this country is white, not Christian. That's a problem. Uh, we invented this uh, notion of whiteness, and Europeans came. There were Italians and Swedes and Germans, and, uh, you know, they clearly weren't all alike. When they became here, they all became white people because we have this whole thing we, we created of racial difference and racial superiority and racial inferiority, right against Genesis chapter 1. That was America's original sin. It still, it still lingers on today in our policing systems. Uh, drug use in this country for whites and blacks is identical. Arrest and incarceration is overwhelmingly black and brown. Why doesn't that bother white Christians? Every black Christian knows that. So 72% of white Christians say all these police incidents and shooting black young people, 72% of white Christians say those are isolated incidents. 85% of black Christians say it's a pattern. It's systemic. It's part of our lives. What are the white Christians saying to their black brothers and sisters? You're lying. You're exaggerating. 70% of white people in America, 70%, have not one significant relationship to a person or a family of color in their social circle. And that's why our racial geography controls our ecclesiology. That's why we are separate. We're not listening to each other's stories. When moms talk to each other about their hopes and dreams and fears for their kids, it's a deeply bonding experience. But when that doesn't happen across racial lines, we believe the caricatures the mythologies, 
the ugly things. And Donald Trump is running his presidency on things that are untrue, and they're uh, uh, untrue, and they're they're contrary to God's purposes. And you know, I want to say, politicians. I know lots of politicians. Do they always tell the truth? Of course not. Do they get caught in lies? Yes, they do. But when lying becomes a way of governing, when it becomes so regular, so ongoing, it's persistent and pathological, something is really in danger for a country, for the fabric of a society, for the framework of raising our our kids. Something has really gone wrong about the denial of the truth, not just getting caught in lies, but really denying there is a truth. Uh, Something has gone wrong when Jesus tells us, you know how it is among the Gentiles, the world, how they lord it over the people, and their great ones, he says, are are tyrants, say they're strong. Here's how it'll be with you. Whoever wants to be great will be the one who serves. Public service is what we should support as Christians. Uh, I believe in democracy not because I think people are good, but because they're often not. You need checks and balances and protections. And so Donald Trump is trying to take away the protections of democracy. And Donald Trump is a danger for autocracy and for authoritarian rule. That's where we are now in this country. This isn't about uh, Republicans and Democrats. This is about a threat to authority. This is about authoritarian rule. This is about uh, denying the truth. And this is about racial, gender, and religious bigotry. These are fundamental moral issues that threaten our... This is about how Christians should vote. This is a threat to our democracy in this country. And there are Republicans and Democrats who are living in fear of what's now happening in this country. Let's finish by talking about flyover country. So masses of people in America, as in other parts of the world, but I think you just had the volume of them here, the numbers, um, are not, don't feel represented in newsrooms or in kind of thought leader circles. That demographic just isn't there. These are people who feel invaded, who feel overtaken, who feel forgotten, who are looking for security. Um, What do you think that tells us about our society? Well, uh, I, I have been a consistent critic of concentrations of power in government, in the economy. We have massive inequality in this nation. We haven't seen the wages go up for uh, middle-class people in a long time. Uh, sure, a lot of folks feel forgotten, because they have been. But I want white folks who feel that maybe now understand Black folks have felt that for a long time. So, uh, but the idea of a, of a, of a billionaire, uh, adulterous, uh, racial bigot being the champion of the forgotten people, around the world, people see that as a bad joke. It's not a joke. That's what's happening. That people are forgotten feel forgotten there's good reason to feel that way this nation is run by elites it has been for a long time that's true 
but Donald Trump is 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 one of those elites. He always has been. That's who he is. Uh, this is not. I don't normally talk this way about politicians because things are often mixed. Things aren't mixed here. Donald Trump is a threat to the integrity of this nation and the integrity of our faith. And those people who you've interviewed are going to be held accountable for their support of Donald Trump. The religious right is rising with Donald Trump. They've got lots of power. They get in the White House all the time. They've made their deal. They've made their transaction. And they're ignoring his behavior. They're ignoring his religious bigotry. They're, they're ignoring his attacks on Muslims. They're ignoring his racial bigotry. They're ignoring his treatment of women. They're ignoring his personal be- be- his be- his personal sexual behavior. They're ignoring his uh, 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 they're ignoring his adulterous lifestyle. And those Christians are going to be held to account. They are they are creating in my mind. Let's call it a state church. A state church where Donald Trump is in control of what the church says. That's wrong. That's wrong. I've been critical of Democrats and Republicans. Christians should be independent. Uh, We shouldn't be chaplains to power or to either party. Dot King said, the church should not be the master of the state or the servant of the state. The church should be the conscience of the state. So I'm looking for Christians, and some of them are conservatives, some are liberals, some are neither who want to say, what does Christian conscience mean right now? Who is, Jesus Christ, who, who is Jesus Christ for us today? That's the question Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? And I'll tell you, the question I hear from church leaders and pastors all over the country, it's on the cover of this issue of Sojourners, is this a Bonhoeffer moment? <laughs>